1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.bysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, we've got another special podcast in our series delving into everything you wanted to know but were too afraid to ask about some of history's biggest subjects. Here to speak about Roman Britain, this week's guest is Miles Russell. Putting the questions to Miles was our content director, Dave Musgrove.
2: So, this is the third in our Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About But We're Afraid to Ask series. And this week we're doing Roman Britain with Miles Russell. Dr. Miles Russell is a senior lecturer in prehistoric and Roman archaeology. He's currently director of Regnum and co director of the Dura Trigues project, both investigating the transition from the Iron Age to Roman Britain across southeast and southwest Britain. Uh, and he is co-director of Bournemouth University's Archaeological Field School. He's written several pieces for BBC History magazine and BBC History Revealed magazine, and indeed for our website, historyextra.com, and he has appeared at several of our our events and uh, has been a really good speaker. He's written numerous books, most relevant for this conversation, being the uh, recently reprinted and re-edited Un-Roman Britain, Exposing the Myths of Britannia, which he wrote with Stuart Laycock, and Bloodline, the Celtic Kings of Roman Britain. So the format is, uh, for anyone who's heard uh, the first two in this series, we've asked for questions from you on social media, uh, on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, on our History Extra channel, and we've pulled out a few popular Google searches as well. So without further ado, I'm going to start firing the questions on Roman Britain at miles right now. But actually I'm not going to do that. First I'm going to say miles, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm very well, thank you. You alright? Yes, very good, very <laughs> good. Good good. Um, so we're going to we're going to jump straight in with uh, with a quick fire round. So the first question is how long were the Romans in Britain, which is a popular Google question.
3: Um uh, Britain was part of the Roman Empire from uh, AD 43 to 410, so that's uh, 367 years. Okay. So yeah, that, that was there as long as it was actually functioning as, as as part of the Roman Empire.
2: Perfect. And this one is one that you may have no idea about. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this <laughs> is possible to calculate. But what was the approximate population of Britain when Claudius invaded? And that comes from Shrews11 on Twitter. Perhaps we should say who Claudius is first as well.
3: Uh, yes, yeah, sure. The M- Emperor Claudius uh, comes to power in AD 41. He's uh, one of the last of the, the Julio Claudians. He's a person who has had no great military experience early on in his life and views the invasion of Britain as something ideal to bolster himself and sort of bolster the prestige of Rome. So we see an invasion in AD 43, um, sort of four legions coming across uh, into Britain. As far as the population goes... It's your guess is as good as mine. You know, we haven't excavated every single settlement. There's no census data for the time. The best guess is somewhere between sort of two and three million uh, at the time they arrive. And when you bear in mind, it's what, 66 million today. It gives you a sense that the landscape of Britain, it's far more settlements are far more dispersed. It's a far more open landscape. It's less organised and less centralised than we would expect today.
2: Okay, and uh, sort of following from that question is uh, one from Bruby24 on Instagram who asked who was living in Britain before the Romans. So we're going back into what <laughs> archaeologists describe as the Iron Age. Um, so w- who was living there? What, what do we know about these people?
3: It's, it's a whole collection of different tribes. I mean, the, the basic problem is that um, they didn't write anything down. So we've got no written information from their point of view. Uh, all we've got is the, the Roman histories, which are, are quite fragmentary, and they give us the names of certain tribes. So we've got things like the Diotriges in Dorset. We've got the Kantiaki in Kent. Uh, we've got the Atribates up in Berkshire. So we've got these these names of distinct and different tribes, but it's very difficult to then say, well, what does that mean? What, what is a tribe? How was it organised? Did people in that tribe have different language, different customs, different way of doing things? Um, so it, it's... We can see there are certain uh, ruling parties, aristocratic elites in Britain, uh, and they're probably farmers and taxpayers and other individuals uh, perhaps being protected by them. But it's a real patchwork of different tribes, different clans, different groups. Um, There's no sort of central authority in Britain at all by the time the Romans arrive
2: and it's uh, it's it's what we describe as a proto-historic society isn't it given that we've got we've got what the Romans said about it, but we don't know anything from what they actually talked about themselves.
3: Exactly, I mean that's that's the major disadvantage of, of trying to understand uh, Iron Age societies from the historical point of view. They're not writing things down. We'd love to get their perspective and what they thought about the Romans. Uh, we don't get that at all. We just get the very one-sided, rather negative view. You know, the Romans trying to show the Britons off as being barbarian. They're painted blue. They've got horse urine in their hair. Um, they marry their sisters. All that kind of information is the Romans are telling us, and it really sort of demonizes and stigmatizes the enemy. But it's it's not a very objective account about everyday life uh, in, in Britain before they arrived. Okay. Right. Super quick. Which Roman emperor first invaded Britain? Claudius. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Julius Caesar was here in 55 and 54 BC, but he was a, a, a general at that stage. So the first emperor to invade Britain is Claudius in, in, in AD 43. Other emperors thought about it before then, but he was the first to actually put it into practice. So perhaps we should just quickly talk about, so Caesar, what happened to to his invasion plans? Um, Julius Caesar really just came to Britain, um, really, it, it was a way of proving that he was the, the superhero of Rome. He could uh, destroy and defeat any of the barbarians who were potentially menacing the Roman Empire, at that stage, Roman Republic. So he, I mean, the, the very fact of actually being able to get troops on board a ship, and get across the English Channel was a first, because as far as the Romans were concerned at that stage, Britain is beyond the civilised world. It's the other side of the ocean. It's, to actually get here is a major achievement. So it's purely the invasion. It's more like an expedition. It's done for propaganda reasons. It wasn't intended as a, as a full-time conquest.
2: Okay, uh, uh, we've already covered which Roman emperor conquered Britain. So um, we're going to shoot to the uh, to the other end of the Roman period. Why did the Romans leave Britain? Is a very popular Google question again.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a difficult question, really, in the, in the sense that as far as we can see, the Romans didn't leave voluntarily. They were ejected. Um, So it's, when we're looking at the end of Roman Britain, which is traditionally put in AD 410, um, the Roman administration was breaking down. You've got barbarian tribes invading. uh, You've got uh, uh, lots of civil wars being enacted. The empire is basically tearing itself apart. And Britain, of course, is right on the margins of empire. It's Essentially, a peripheral interest. I mean, it, it, it's, it's money producing. There's gold. There's tin. There's lead being being dug up from there. It, it's contributing, but it's a long way off. It's troublesome. It's difficult to finance. And at several stages, Britain is electing its own sort of leaders. And at one stage, it just sort of um, the, the well, whoever's in charge in Britain says enough. We do not want to be part of the Roman world anymore. Eighty four oh nine. They're effectively ejecting their Roman leaders. So, I mean, you, you, you could draw comparisons with the discussions that Britain's having with the EU at the moment. There's that sense of isolationism of wanting to go it alone. And in 410, it's just the date that the Emperor Honorius says, fine, OK, do it your own way. We've had enough of you. Sort yourselves out. So it, it's more a case of the empire collapsing and Britain deciding to do its own thing than the Romans actually deciding to leave.
2: Okay, and you say you've got this, as you said, this famous, um, it's, it's sometimes called the Rescript of an Aureus, isn't it, which basically says, look to your own look yeah. to your own defence.
3: Sort yourselves out, yes. Yeah. So we, we we haven't got the time, the energy, or the inclination to come and help you anymore. You on your own.
2: Okay. All right. Thus ends the quick fire round. So now if you want to be uh, uh, <laughs> slightly long-winded on these, then then you can. So... so uh, uh, a question which is kind of been asked in many different ways, but basically, what did the Romans do for Britain? That's, uh, that's a question which is asked a lot on Google.
3: Uh, Comparatively little. I mean, they exploited Britain beautifully. They managed to extract foodstuffs to feed, you know, grain to feed their armies, uh, mineral reserves. You've got the lead mines, gold mines, iron mines. Um, They they are taken... I mean, the Roman Empire is a very exploitative empire, so they they are thinking of Britain in purely commercial terms. Now, you can argue that, yes, they created towns in southern Britain. We've got a whole series like, you know, Winchester and, and Canterbury and Chichester are all Roman creations but they weren't very successful towns in the big scheme of things. And you could actually say at the end of Roman Britain, it's pretty much the same as the beginning, in that you've got small tribal elites, you've got people fighting one another, you've got disconnected, uh, broken down society. Uh, none of the Roman traditions, laws, language actually survives. So you've all, although you've got 367 years where Britain's part of the Roman Empire, they're not really, for whatever reasons winning the hearts and minds of the Britons. They're not, it's not like you're seeing in Southern France or in Spain, where the beginnings of the modern state, the medieval state are based on, on what the Roman predecessors. In Britain, it begins and it ends and it doesn't really have any significant impact on what follows. So you could say, what did the Romans ever do for us or for the Britons? Not very much, but they got a lot out of the relationship. You know, they were able to take what they wanted from Britain, but didn't give an awful lot back
2: okay and so this next question kind of you've slightly answered it but um, but you might want to add some more so this is from uh, Miss D history on Twitter who is a history teacher um, how much did the Romans change or influence Britain and can any of this still be seen today and apparently this is the question that her students most want to know
3: I guess I mean, you mean you could say yeah the the, the physical infrastructure that they created segments of roads the the basis of towns you can say yes they're there and you can see obviously mosaics in villas that have been excavated so their, their footprint is still here but they didn't really have any kind of impact on the societies that followed so the early british and the saxon kingdoms that developed after the romans had been and gone you know that they are completely unaffected by what went before that about the Romans at all. So their legacy, as such, is more an archaeological one, uh, and is a legacy of memory rather than having any kind of impact on society. I don't really think if the Romans hadn't have been to Britain, I'm sure things really wouldn't have been that much different afterwards. But
2: architecturally and uh, archaeologically, uh, there are there are lots of places where you can oh. see stuff.
3: Absolutely, you know archaeologically we yeah, we've got forts, we've got towns we've got villas, but within a, a space of, of ten twenty years after the collapse of the administration in Britain, these buildings are being robbed of their stonework they're no longer functioning, and whoever's taking charge of Britain after the Romans go isn't basing their society on on the Roman one so it's sort of it, it's effectively quite well forgotten in the fifth and sixth centuries, so really you know physically lots of remains, but actually socially no real impact whatsoever
2: okay. Google wants to know uh, more specifically, are there any Roman roads left in Britain? So I presume that's not talking about the network uh, underlying <laughs> it. Uh, well, maybe it is, but we'll answer as you see fit.
3: Yeah, I mean, you still see lots of um, sections before the arrival of motorways in Britain. Most of our A roads were sort of based on the the Roman layout. So, you know, you can see Stain Street, Ermine Street. You can see the big Roman roads panning out of London were followed in the medieval and the modern era. It's only with the arrival of motorways where we've got new roads, new systems connecting up with new towns, does that network disappear and fade away. So, whenever you're seeing nice straight sections of road uh, on ordnance survey maps, those are, you know, those are the Roman originals. They've been overlain, but significantly today, our, our network really isn't based on, on the Roman system at all. It's been largely forgotten.
2: Am I right in thinking that there is, a, there is a section of road or road which looks to be roaming up on one of the uh, Yorkshire moors, isn't there?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess the difficulty of some is when you're looking at a road, you're trying to date it. Um, you know, it's unlike... Uh, earth banks or ditches where you've got finds in a road is a road and it often doesn't contain artifacts and roads are used for hundreds of years so trying to date one can be difficult usually if you've got a a straight line connecting two roman forts you can say that's obviously a roman road but when you're looking at a a straightish earthwork in the landscape just a small section it can be very difficult to date so there are lots of things which are thought to be roman but on on inspection and looking at them you think probably not there might be a sort of a, a small section of medieval road actually reusing earlier stonework Sure. Okay. Uh, so that's sort of talked a bit, a bit about the uh, the archaeological
2: and architectural sources for Roman Britain. Uh, but Jean Prince on Twitter wanted to know what written materials do we have from the time, and what do they say? So you talked a bit earlier uh, about the uh, the earliest um, Roman sources, but uh, throughout the period, what have we got?
3: We've got lots of nice big inscriptions, of course, but they don't really tell us very much because they are big, sort of monumental propaganda statements that really just tell you about names of particular emperors and when something was built. Uh, as far as the the actual population itself goes, we've got relatively little. Uh, we obviously, yeah, you know, any Roman administrators in the country would have been literate; they would be writing things down. But the circumstances of preservation for that is actually quite rare. At Vindolanda, just south of Hadrian's Wall, you've got the, the so-called Vindolanda writing tablets, which are uh, sections of, of, sort of wooden and, and other sort of tablets which uh, survived because they were partially burnt and they ended up in a bog. So we've got these texts... Most of them are just lists, like shopping lists and information about who's on sentry duty. But every so often you get things like there's there's an invite between the the wife of one of the fort commanders to the wife of another one just down the road saying, will you come to my birthday party? There's a soldier up there writing home looking for socks and underpants. And you get that tiny little flash of light when you can see the real people. And that's amazing. But it, it is so very rare. At Bath, Um, you've got a whole series of of, uh, tablets which were written out to um, the goddess Sulis basically saying whoever stole my cloak may you curse them and strike them down and and, fill their lungs with blood and all these kind of unpleasant things and again you, you can see real people and their real hopes and dreams and aspirations but other than those two little areas we know very little about what ordinary people are thinking because their writings just don't survive
2: Okay. Right. Uh, We've got a few questions which I've bunched together on Roman culture. And we've got one which uh, feels like it must be coming from an agenda. It's Planning for Pubs Limited on Twitter, which asks, (laughs) uh, did Romans bring the concept of the pub as a place to meet friends and drink with them from Italy?
3: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> um we We know obviously the Romans have got small bars and and drinking establishments often as you're going into towns there There is evidence that sort of thing is in Britain, of course we don 't know what they 're doing in the pre Roman period um there's lots of uh, later literature about Celtic societies about feasting and drinking, which then leads to fighting and killing um so it seems to be that you know, pre Roman society is is there is quite a lot of drinking there. But with the Romans, they certainly there is some evidence that we've got bars and small drinking establishments. So if you know you want to say the invention of beer is in the Iron Age or if not earlier, but the invention of wine and drinking bars and wine clubs uh, really sort of comes in the Roman period. So there is certainly some evidence for that in Britain.
2: Okay, and carrying on the, um, the alcoholic vibe, uh, this is uh, C.R.K. Ronderat on Twitter, who asks, uh, did the Romans plant vines to grow grapes? And I, I assume uh, the-, the question is referring to Britain specifically.
3: Yeah, I mean in the in the 3rd century in Britain the, the, it seems the the environment the climate is slightly warmer and there is some evidence from a number of villas in the south and west to suggest viticulture that they are actually planting vines. Now of course the soil's not great. Um and I say that with caution because I know people are making wine today in Britain. Um uh, but it would have been slightly better conditions then than now so there is some limited evidence that they certainly are producing wine they're certainly importing a lot you know we've got amphora we've got the big wine storage vessels from the Mediterranean coming into Britain right the way through the first second third centuries so whatever they can't make up themselves they're certainly bringing a lot in and of course wine is the staple of Roman civilization so it's important to get as much as you can into Britain because it's not able to produce that much itself
2: but there's no, uh, there's no inscriptions or anything of anyone bemoaning the quality of British
3: made wine or anything like that. That's no, a- there's, a, there's a few scatter bits of text bemoaning the quality of British beer, right. um, <laughs> but there's nothing really saying about the, uh, you know, what kind of wine is actually uh, what, you know, what you know, the Britons are. I'm sure if wine was being produced to any great quantity here, it wouldn't have been great. It would not have compared to what was being made in, in the Mediterranean.
2: Okay. Uh, A lot of people uh, asking a similar sort of question on Instagram, uh, on our Instagram feed at History Extra, which is basically, did the Romans have music, dance and and other arts? And I suppose, again, specifically within the context of of, uh, Romano-British culture.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the Romans, are called, I mean, they, there's records of music and they've got theatres, they've got musical performances. Of course, we don't get any musical text surviving to us. We can not got any sheet music from that period. We've got uh, pan pipes and we've got, you know, Nero famously played a lyre whilst uh, Rome was burning. And you've got other sort of... Um, actually physical musical instruments. So you can say what sounds they made, but we've got no Roman music from that period. So you know whenever you see a great Hollywood epic and you've got people drumming and trumpets blaring, that's the modern interpretation of the, the kind of music they made. We've honestly got no idea. We know they did have these things, but what they sounded like and you know what kind of dance, how what sort of dance they were performing, absolutely no idea whatsoever, sadly
2: perfect and then uh then then a, a good question from uh from the um brilliantly named angus mcchilly on twitter uh when uh, in your opinion did the romano british truly lose their roman culture which um is a leading question it implies that they did lose this roman culture
3: i think you know when we're looking at Britain, the people who have most of the Roman culture with them are those who are coming from other parts of the roman empire the the, the successful the the business elites the wealthy. Some of the Britons certainly mapped into that and, and bought into that system, but that economy was breaking down by about the three sixties three seventies a d and then suddenly you see all the villas ending uh, and all signs of wealth disappearing you know, high-status objects are being buried. So somewhere between about sort of 360 and about 380, we see a, a catastrophic economic collapse in Britain, and that's the period where anyone who is holding on to Roman culture is probably leaving or is adapting or changing their way. So really... The the golden age of Roman Britain, as far as culture goes, is in the fourth century. But as you get into the end of that fourth century, it disappears almost overnight. There's something major, um, a catastrophic sort of economic disaster at that at that point, and everything goes.
2: Okay. Uh, This is an interesting question from Anna McComish on Twitter, uh, who asks, what would you say was the most important role for Roman soldiers in Britain? Uh, And she asks, as military defence or for aiding the creation of infrastructure?
3: I mean, it depends what period you're looking at. At the beginning, of course, the Romans' troops are very good at killing. Uh, That's their primary objective. Having done that and and, uh, conquered Britain, then they are creating... The infrastructure. So in the first century AD, you've got roads being built, you've got forts being built, and they're laying out the skeletons, the actual roads for towns. So in that stage, it's it's the Roman army that makes that tries to turn all these little different tribal areas into one functioning province. As we go on into the second and third century, that building's been done, and the Roman army essentially is, is protecting that frontier, everything from York up to Newcastle and Carlisle is, is a militarised zone, and that's protecting everything to the south. In the south, you've got villas and temples and towns, and in the west, you've got the mining areas. But the north is just one massive militarised zone. So the army in the latter part of the Roman Empire, its primary objective is to protect all Roman investments to the south. So you're seeing a very different elements of a different side to Roman culture in southern Britain where there's money and the northern part where there is just the army. Okay. So, yeah, I guess it depends what time you're actually talking in in, in regards to Roman Britain.
2: Yeah, and we've got to remember, people talk about Roman Britain, but it is, you know, three and a half centuries long, isn't it? So, uh, so it's a fair amount I mean, of
3: time. You think, you know, going back the same length of time, we are going back to the end of the English Civil War. In Britain, you think how much has happened since from then till now? That's the equivalent amount of time. So there's so much social change, political and religious change in that period. It's not just one homogenous culture from beginning to end. It's it's evolving and changing all the way through.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: So Boudicca is strange to the Romans that you've got a a female war leader who's taking tribes into battle and organising campaigns. The Britons, as far as we can see, would have viewed that as, as perfectly normal. You know, men and women can rule equally. It's not a problem to them. But the Romans find that deeply strange. It's another thing that they add to their list of British weirdness.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed.
4: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H L P.com/slash history extra. Okay, now this is a great question from
2: uh, Stevie Diane 89 on Twitter, uh, which is How much did the average Briton know about who was the Emperor? And did power change affect them at all? So basically, just asking what uh, what the what the, uh, the man in the street in Roman Britain knew about what was going on in uh, in Italy. I guess
3: I, I suspect the average person in the street would know very little. I mean, you'd see names and faces changing on coins every so often. In the third century, you're getting a new emperor every six months to a year. It's just a rapid changeover in the civil infighting. So I think they would certainly be aware that the economy was suffering from these civil wars. They would see names and faces changing on coins. They probably would have no real idea. The army in the north would have a better idea as to who their leader is. And in some cases, they're actually contributing to the the changeover of command because we see a number of people in Britain actually being promoted to the rank of emperor and then taking soldiers out to fight. So in the third and fourth centuries, Britain's producing its own emperors. But I think essentially the average person in a town or in a villa or in the countryside would have absolutely no idea who was in charge of them. They were just aware there was an emperor, but he was a very long way. I suppose that almost sounds like their godlike status. You've got no idea what they look like, what how they sound. They're just a long way. You're aware they're there, but ultimately their their name means nothing to you.
2: You just made a, a good point there, it was the, the godlike status. Would, would, would people have, have deemed these emperors to have been in some ways deities?
3: In the first century, absolutely, yes. Yeah, I mean, one of the key things about an emperor um, is they are they are sort of worshipped almost like a god. When they die, quite a number of them become gods. So their their successor makes sure that their predecessor is deified, has temples built to them. So they, they've got this aura about them that's unlike anyone else. They're the first citizen of Rome. They are number one, you know. And so they, they've got this – they are the link between the mortal world and the gods above. So they, they have this uh, – really incredible status by the third and fourth centuries ad it's becoming quite clear to most people that they're just generals fighting for power so the whole sort of status gets diminished from that point onwards but in the first and second centuries yeah they, they are treated like gods striding the earth
2: uh another sort of population question which uh, again may be difficult to answer this is from uh TG Mini's painting gallery, um, which sounds great. Uh, how many people settled in Britain from Italy? And other than soldiers, what jobs did they have? So I guess that's quite difficult to, uh, to come it up an answer. It to. is. I
3: mean, I'd love it if there was a full sort of census list saying names and you know backgrounds of everybody. We, we've got the tombstone information. Sometimes we can tell when we're looking at the army. You can see you know the, the, the frontier in, in northern Britain. You've got Syrians, North Africans. Uh, you've got uh, Iraqi boatmen. You've got a whole sort of great cultural mix of people up there. I suspect in the south, the majority of administrators are coming from. Italy or the south of France or Spain. Um, and probably quite a lot of the people living in villas are from other parts of the Roman Emperor's, uh, Empire as well. But the sad thing is that not everyone is recorded. So we ultimately don't know. We we know there's a huge mix of people and population when we, where we do find tombstone evidence. It's quite surprising to see how far people have come. So although there's probably not that many from Rome, there's quite a lot from Italy And Spain and the central bit of the Mediterranean who are here in official positions. Uh, There's probably very few people who were born in Britain who are actually benefiting very much from this and are actually going on to great administrative posts. So although we don't know, we've got a pretty good idea that the bulk of the population is probably from other parts of the Roman Empire.
2: Has there been any work done with uh, with DNA and genetic studies to try and understand how far uh, Roman uh, DNA is is part of the of the modern population mix
3: it's starting absolutely I mean one of the one of the major problems in the first century is most Roman cemeteries are cremation cemeteries so you don't get the sort of the uh, the useful bone data but yeah doing DNA doing isotope analysis it, it, it is beginning um it's still in its infancy but we are getting sort of quite interesting information quite a lot of individuals who were thought to be Romano Britons and when analyzed it seems you know, they, they come from Ethiopia or they come from uh, Algeria or Tunis so there was a real sense that actually socially, it it is a great genetic mix um but quite how deep that mix was and whether you've got more people who are from britain in that we don't know as yet more it more study really needs to be conducted
2: hmm. okay uh Katie Hayes, Free Free on Instagram wants to know, what were the lives of women like in Roman Britain?
3: Again, it would be, be lovely if we knew. Um, we've got, you know, when, when we occasionally got tombstones uh, of indiv- very wealthy Romans, because uh, it's only the wealthy that, that survived to us, you know, in, in historical sense. So you can see people sitting there in all their finery with their jewels looking very nice, at a dining table and so on. Um, as far as ordinary people, we're really relying on skeletal evidence and therefore you're looking at evidence of how well nourished people are how you know what kind of traumas they've suffered in their life um we are lacking as much as we are for men as as women for the general population uh we need more skeletal information to examine because the written text the histories really just tell us about the generals the kings queens uh emperors so for most women, when we're talking about Roman Britain, is people like Boudica or Cartimandua, uh, or the Queen of the north, just because the Romans mention them. Uh, Rome is a very patriarchal society. We know that it viewed Britain in rather low terms because women and men can hold office in Britain. Women and men are of equal status. And the Romans thought that was very barbarian. So they've got a very sort of... Um, down would look very sort of demeaning look at the way of society within Britain but we just really don't have the information there as to what ordinary men and women are doing so when you say the lives of women it is it is very difficult to say about the lives of, of anyone really within Roman Britain
2: Okay, now you helpfully mentioned Boudicca uh, just then, and I should mention you've done a, you've done a lovely "what if" piece on uh, on Boudicca, on what would have happened uh, if uh, if um, uh, revolts had been successful for BBC History Revealed Re- 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 magazine, and that's on uh, historyextra.com now, so people can have a read of that. But I saw a question coming on Twitter just before um, before I called you, uh, which um, which I didn't have a chance to get the name of, but uh, basically asking how unusual it was for a woman to be uh, in a position of power or authority uh at the time so i don't know if you've got uh, any any thoughts on that
3: we we know um in as far as the romans were concerned they they mentioned the fact that in britain men and women hold equal status and as i said you know they view that as odd <laughs> from their point of view it rome is very much about the men in power uh, rather than the women so that they they viewed britain as or because of this kind of equality that they, they're going on so Boudicca is strange to the Romans that you've got a, a female war leader who's taking tribes into battle and organising campaigns. The Britons, as far as we can see, would have viewed that as, as perfectly normal. You know, men and women can rule equally. It's not a problem to them. But the Romans find that deeply strange. It's another thing that they add to their list of British weirdness.
0: British
2: weirdness. Excellent. <laughs> um, OK, so we've got a couple um, uh, on uh, sort of the end of Rome and the end of Rome in Britain. Um uh, we got uh, Matilda Empress on Twitter asks: Did the civilian Romans in Britain leave when the legions withdrew? And then a follow up: If not, how long until they assimilated completely with the indigenous English? And I'm sure you're going to query the the last clause there. It's
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the the English come much later. I mean, if we're talking about English specifically, then we're talking about the the Germanic peoples, the Anglo Saxons and Jutes who are migrating into Britain in larger numbers in the fifth and sixth century, but. It's as far as we can see, those people who wanted to be part of the Roman Empire, who'd invested in Rome, who had money, resources there left at the very end of the 4th century or the beginning of the 5th. So when Britain leaves in 410, if you're still in Britain, then there's no real evidence that Roman culture is surviving. So they're probably warlords, uh, people with their own private armies. Uh, We're seeing the the, the kind of um, social disorder that you see Perhaps you know you could argue in Afghanistan or Syria today. You've got different ethnic groups fighting one another, and it's very difficult to get a real idea of what is going on. But I suspect most of the people who still wanted to be part of that Roman system left at the beginning of the fifth century AD, never to return. So there's nothing really Roman here left for the Anglo Saxons when they arrive to move into. You know, Roman culture's dead. And the Britons who are still here have rejected it totally. So there's there's no sense of Roman culture permeating into that that period afterwards.
2: Uh, and then a sort of follow up on that from Jared Tully on Instagram, which is how did the people adapt to the departure of empire and loss of imperial infrastructure? So
3: you've touched on that a bit, but uh, perhaps you want yeah, to. Yeah, I that. mean, I think I think for. Most people, um, I suppose, the, the basic rhythms of life go on the same, but that period, really, from about three sixty to I guess about sort of four thirty, is it, it, it's a massive change. If you're growing up in that period, everything you know about the administration who's governing you has gone. the The protection of the Roman Empire is gone. The, the big road connections and trade connections have gone as well. So it's suddenly becoming lots of little Britons, lots of smaller tri- tribal groups competing against one another. So there's a sudden period of very dramatic change. And then as we go on into the 6th and 7th centuries, you've got these sort of kingdoms developing. So for that one brief window, it is, I suppose, it, it is quite traumatic. Uh, you, everything you would have been familiar to you would have changed. So people are making that sort of comparison now with what's going on in the world uh, with the, the Roman world, is that sort of change is, is far more dramatic, but you do get the sense that that um, you know the wealthy have lost their money, the administrators have gone, the, you're no longer paying tax, but there's no army to protect you. So for about sixty years, it's a complete upheaval, and then a new process of society develops beyond that.
2: And correct me if I'm wrong, but um there were there is some archaeological evidence of people trying to carry on some sort of Roman existence within certain towns, isn't there? There is some sense that people were were attempting at least to 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 follow something akin to 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 a Roman life
3: well, there is but I mean, I think what we're looking at there is is more like life in towns rather than town life. you know the Romans all about civic society and the structure of towns uh once that gone, you've still got people inhabiting. Those the remains of those towns uh, it's becoming a, a more still perhaps a trade centre, but you're seeing that there is evidence of animal farming going on there. There's fields, you've got long houses. You feel like it's more perhaps a, a tribal society within the town rather than towns connected to one another and being a sense of urban life that the Romans would understand. So the towns are often placed in very good trade connection points. They, they dominate the landscape. They're still being lived in. But not in a very Roman way. And is there are
2: there any so that's sort of archaeological sources? Are there any written sources that uh, that highlight this period at all? This, are there any sort of you know apocalyptic uh, writings from anyone saying, "Woe is me, the the world's fallen apart."
3: There, there's one major source that's regularly used, and that's Gildas. Gildas is writing at some point at the beginning of the 6th century, and he's writing uh, in a very religious mindset. So it's essentially it's a series of sermons, and it's bemoaning the, the decadence and the sinfulness of the Britons. So the Saxons are treated as a scourge from God. They're a biblical plague, and it's all people running around with their togas on fire and blood and thunder. It, it's fantastic, dramatic stuff, but it's difficult to know whether that's actually real. It's being filtered through Gildas's overtly sort of uh, Christian mindset. So it's the only source that we've got. People look at that and think it must have been horrendous for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, But that's only Gildas telling us. It'd be lovely if there were other sources around. We could balance his viewpoint up a little bit more fairly, but we just don't have them, I'm afraid.
2: Okay, brilliant. Right. We've got uh, just a couple of uh, slightly more random ones to uh, to finish with, if that's okay. So uh, Benjamin uh, TH Russell on Instagram wants to know, did Claudius really bring elephants with him to Britain?
3: As far as we know, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, Claudius is very much, he he wants to make a big statement when he comes to Britain. He likes to, to view himself perhaps as the new Hannibal. Um, so he's bringing elephants to Britain. He's doing something which, people would think was impossible even you know today bringing elephants across the english channel but he he makes uh, very much an entrance it's all about showing off the britons wouldn't have seen elephants so they're not being brought from the point of view as their war machines but they're just intended as part of his uh, dramatic entrance into britain and people could now start worshipping him as a god
2: okay and the uh, the last one a perennial favorite from beatrice vella 18 on instagram did Romans really use a shared sponge to wipe their bottoms? Uh, and then she uh, follows on, surely they had their own. So I, I think she seems to be wondering more about the sharing <laughs> rather than the, the sponge itself.
3: I think it's like a, a, a toothbrush today. You don't want to share it with anybody, uh, and certainly not a, a bottom sponge. Um, with the, the, there are... Texts and we do get information as well from places like Pompeii and Herculaneum that such things exist. I suspect not everyone has them. Distant Britain wouldn't have access to to sponges and those sort of things. So you would use whatever is to hand, including your hand. Uh, And I I think you would make sure that you would dispose of those things. It's not part of a sharing process. I mean, the Romans, their idea of hygiene is slightly different to us. But I think on wiping yourself, they would have the same view that we would do. You just don't share.
2: Excellent. But of course, they had you know, they had baths for the, for, the, for the richer echelons of society.
3: I mean, the great thing about Roman baths is we look at them and we think they're great sort of hygienic health property areas. Most of these baths don't have plugs. Um, there's no way we can see that the water can come out unless someone's bucketing it. So it might be that in a big plunge pool in the town bath, the water's been in there for weeks. It becomes like a human soup. So probably the Roman bathhouse is probably one of the least hygienic <laughs> places you can imagine in Roman Britain
2: brilliant uh okay right we've done with the question so just one more quick one from me uh while we're in uh we're recording this as we're in uh corona lockdown um and i'm just thinking where would i go if i wanted to explore roman britain i'd probably go to somewhere like chedworth roman villa and see the beautiful mosaics there and uh, and wander around the remains there where would you go if you wanted to to, to find a get a sense of roman britain
3: I mean, we're very fortunate. There's so much to see here in Britain. You mentioned Chedworth. There's also Bignor Villa and Fishbourne Roman Palace, which are very close together uh, in Sussex. Uh, You've got St. Albans, the Roman town of Verilamium. You've got theatre there and a fantastic museum. Hadrian's Wall is just Mm -hmm. utterly amazing with the you know, it's one of the best places to see the Roman military. There's forts all over the place up there. Uh, Sirencester is a fantastic place to go. He's got the Carinian Museum. So very much you know, the south and east, you've got a, a great array of, of uh, villas and towns. But the north, if you, un- if you love the Roman army, there's just so much to see from York, right there up to Hadrian's. Well, and the Antonine Wall in southern Scotland, um, fantastic series of sites. So there are lots of good guidebooks about, lots of stuff on the web. But, you know, Britain once the virus is over and we can get out into the countryside again there's just so much to see
2: brilliant okay well, well miles thank you so much for your time that's uh, that's gone through all those questions and answered them uh, extremely uh, extremely fulsomely. so thank you for that i should just remind uh, listeners that uh, that your book unroman britain exposing the myth of britannia as i said that's uh, there's a new edition of that which is out right now presumably
3: it is it is right. second edition's out now who's the, the who's shops. the publisher uh the, the publisher is the history press okay um you can find them on their website and on amazon
2: perfect so that's uh that's a that's a good one to read to uh to get some further information about this and like i said once uh once the lockdown's over then uh hopefully our our listeners will be out and about exploring some of the places you've just uh, you've just mentioned so thank you so much for your time uh it's been a
1: pleasure thank you
0: that was miles russell You can find plenty more podcasts and articles on Roman Britain and the Roman Empire at our website, historyextra.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to include in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Our next episode will be out tomorrow when you can hear Henry Hemming discussing the real spies that inspired James Bond.